This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress has lately been pursuing, among other things, a very unmodern idea, namely how to enhance civility and collaboration on Capitol Hill. On Thursday, it conducted a hearing on this and several other matters. For an update on the committee's work, we turn to Washington Democrat Derek Kilmer, the chairman, Representative Kilmer. Good to have you on. Great to be back with you, Tom. And the vice chair, South Carolina Republican William Timmons. Representative Timmons, good to have you on. Great to be with you. Thanks for having us. All right. So the committee has been at this now for several years. A lot of recommendations have come out, lots of hearings. Give us an update on where the whole thing stands. It's moving. I have to tell you, this committee was set up now three years ago with a goal of making Congress work better for the American people. And yeah, I think every committee member has now had that tattooed on their arm. In that vein, the committee has now passed a total of 142 recommendations that are really geared around making Congress a more efficient and more effective institution. Those recommendations deal with everything from staffing to the use of technology to, as you mentioned in your intro, issues around civility and collaboration. So here's what's cool. Part of our approach on this committee, it's a little bit like the old Saturday Night Live fake commercial for the bank that only makes change. You know, our motto is like, we make change. That's what we do. You know, our goal isn't just to make recommendations. It's to make change within the institution If you look at the 97 recommendations that were passed in the 116th Congress, over 60% of them have either been implemented or have seen some meaningful action. 24 have been fully implemented, and another 15 more are nearing full implementation. And so that is just tremendous progress. And frankly, we're just getting started. We still have a full year ahead of us. A bunch of new projects are getting off the ground. We had a hearing this week with the CAO and with the clerk of the house to talk about some of the progress still to be made. So I'm really enthusiastic. You know, we're, we're really the first reform committee that made a decision that we weren't just going to make recommendations, but we were going to work on implementation in real time. And I'm excited about the progress we're making. And Representative Timmons, what's your point of view? You're a little bit newer to Congress than Representative Kilmer. Neither one of you go back to Sam Rayburn. So what does it look like from your standpoint? It's important to remember my campaign slogan when I ran for Congress four years ago was that Washington is broken. And three years in to be part of the effort to try to reform Congress to make it more efficient, effective and transparent for the American people is just an incredible opportunity. I love it. And it's been an honor to work with the chairman. We got a lot of work left to do. And I'm excited about what the next year holds. And tell us more about that civility idea when you have one half calling the other side Bull Connor and that half calling the other side Ho Chi Minh, essentially, back and forth and variants on that theme. But you know what I'm talking about. How do you bridge that gap when nobody drinks bourbon together anymore? Well, I drink wine and I drink wine with anyone that wants to. So we're working on that. But in all seriousness, the whole purpose of Congress is to engage in evidence-based policymaking in a collaborative manner from a position of mutual respect. And we don't do that. And we got to get back to that. That's what the American people deserve. That's what this country needs. And there's a lot of noise in Washington. There's a lot of noise in the media. Technology's made it worse. Social media's made it worse. But I think that we can find a way to find common ground. It's going to be a lot of hard work, but it is definitely worth doing. And what are some of the ways that we can get there, Representative Kilmer? Yeah, let me say two things on that front. I think the American people are righteously exhausted by just the degree to which there's too much partisan bickering and not enough progress in our nation's capital. We, as a committee, pulled on this thread 
we reached out to a really broad group of folks with expertise on this. It is just a fact that organizations with a broken culture are less effective. So we brought in experts in organizational psychology, in conflict resolution, in strategic negotiations. We talked to management consultants. We talked to sports coaches. I thought about reaching out to an exorcist just to see how we can make the institution function more collaboratively. And so coming out of that, the committee right before the new year passed 14 recommendations to address partisanship and to foster more collaboration. They looked at things like how to enable committees to have more opportunities for things like bipartisan planning and enabling Democrats and Republicans literally to just sort of sit down and work through issues together, sometimes in a less formal setting. You know, we've heard throughout the work of our committee, some of the concerns relating to new member orientation. You know, I talked to a retired sports coach who had taken over a team that was very broken. And I said, how do you fix a broken culture? And he said, the the best thing you can do is promote better culture with the new members of your team. Well, in Congress, oftentimes new members would get brought in and literally it was divided from the beginning where you'd have Democrats get on one bus and Republicans get on another bus. And so part of our committee's recommendation was to promote collaboration as part of new member orientation. We looked at even things like how to utilize technology better to facilitate member collaboration so that if you're a member who wants to work on immigration policy or wants to work on healthcare policy, that you would be able to better connect with a colleague, perhaps a colleague across the aisle who has a similar priority. The other thing I'll just mention to you, Tom, is the approach of our committee was not just with the recommendations we've made, but also with the approach that we've taken as a committee. If you watch, or if any of those listening watch one of our hearings on C-SPAN, you'll find we do things differently. We don't sit with Democrats on one side of the dais and Republicans on the other, Because, you know, just by the nature of when you hear something interesting in committee, you lean over to the person sitting next to you and say, hey, what do you think about that? And in our committee, when you lean over, you lean over next to someone from the different party. And that, I think, has value. We don't even sit on a dais. We sit around a round table. I have never had a constructive conversation speaking to the back of someone's head. And so we've said, let's not do that. You know, we've stopped the sort of five-minute speechifying for social media, and we've had a much more open approach to our committee hearings, where if members have a question or want to pull on a thread, they just raise their hand and say, hey, can I, can I follow up on that? And we have found that that has led to less of what you see in a whole lot of committees, where it's members trying to pull a five-minute clip for social media and more actually trying to learn something from our witnesses. So those are some of the things our team is doing a bit differently. Representative Timmons. One last thing, you know, we are viewing this as a a multi-decade approach. So we make a small change this Congress. We recommend a small change here. And over the next few years, it really pays dividends. So we're not going to be able to fix this place tomorrow. But when you build relationships and, you know, in 10 years, 20 years, when the the speaker and the minority leader are friends, they have a, they have a relationship. That is how this place is going to change. And that's one of the things that we're working on. We're speaking with Republican William Timmons and Democrat Derek Kilmer, vice chair and chair, respectively, of the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. And I want to move on to the 
recommendations regarding evidence-based policymaking. And this is the law of the land for federal agencies. And there's a growing expertise in use of data science and so forth because of a couple of different laws that Congress passed having to do with that. But how does that apply in Congress and what are you doing there? And if you don't mind, I'd like to maybe use one bill as an example, and that is the voting legislation that has passed in one house, did not pass in the other chamber. And because, in my view, neither side characterizes the other side's version of voting laws accurately. And they may mischaracterize them in a deliberate way, which means nobody's getting at the issue of what is the reality of voting in the United States. And I'm not going to take a side one way or another, but maybe use that as an example for what you mean in the area of evidence-based policymaking. Representative Timmons? Generally speaking, both sides have a set of talking points, and those talking points are designed to sway someone's mind that has not made up their mind yet. We're not having legitimate dialogue on the underlying issue. We don't even agree what the problem is, and we're not engaging in legitimate policymaking. That's not an indictment of the Democrats. That's not an indictment of the Republicans. It's it's how the place operates on everything, not just on voting rights. Immigration, I think, is probably the worst example or the best example, depending on how you look at it. It's something that we should easily find a path forward for this country. And we have failed for decades to make any changes. And so we've got to begin these conversations and not use talking points and talk past each other. Representative Kilmer. You mentioned this is something that the executive branch already did. You saw a commission on evidence-based policymaking that recommended that within the executive branch, that you better use data throughout the work of those agencies. What we've recommended is basically doing that for Congress by creating a congressional commission on evidence-based policymaking hopefully to unearth ways to encourage and better facilitate the use of actual evidence and data in the legislative process within Congress. To William's point, that doesn't happen enough in Congress. And I think there's a real opportunity. We saw when there was a commission within the executive branch, it yielded a tremendous amount of change for the better. And I think to the extent that a commission like this could make recommendations on how to incorporate outcomes measurement, more rigorous impact analysis into the lawmaking process. I think, you know, incorporating real-time data into the lawmaking process, I think that will be better for the American people and hopefully means that legislation will be driven by fact and by evidence, not just by political talking points. And of course, Congress has its own institutions and structures for getting at evidence and information, GAO, the Congressional Budget Office, and a lot of the recommendations from recent votes have concerned strengthening those organizations that support Congress, the congressional agencies. And that's kind of gotten lost a little bit in the noise. So maybe review how you would bolster those organizations. Tom, let me jump in just a big picture. The way this place is supposed to work is... On any issue, there's going to be people on both ends of the spectrum. And you're supposed to say, all right, what's the issue? Where are you on the spectrum? And then inevitably, you have to remove the 10% on the fringe because you're not going to be able on both fringe. And then you take the 80% in the middle and then you work your way to 60%. That's how this place is supposed to work. We don't do that because no matter what the issue is, the fringe is always driving the conversation on both sides. And so we're not engaging in policymaking. We're not. We're engaging in these talking points. The depth of understanding on the issues is 
inevitably so low, we rarely get long enough to review legislation before it is voted on. And that is the same no matter which side of the aisle you're on. So we got to get back to really getting deep into the weeds on some of these issues because you're never going to resolve the biggest challenges facing this country using talking points. And rarely will a party line vote solve the biggest challenges facing this country. So that's one of the big things that we work on. How do we get people to work together? And, and to your specific question about the support agencies, you know, a lot of the work of Congress and a lot of the way in which Congress seeks to make better laws and implement better laws is really dependent on the work of the support agencies, the Congressional Research Service, the Congressional Budget Office, the Government Accountability Office. And so part of the recommendations that our committee just made right before the holidays was to bolster those support agencies in a number of ways, trying to help them get better access to federal data and to experts so that, you know, oftentimes these agencies that are so important to the ability of Congress to do lawmaking and do appropriate oversight um, run into challenges accessing data from the agencies themselves. So one of our recommendations was in that vein. We also made recommendations relating to just trying to ensure that these agencies have products and services that are really designed to adapt and to meet the needs of an evolving Congress. And to make sure, frankly, that members and staff are better aware of those products and services, again, with the goal of having a Congress that makes better laws and is more responsive to the American people. That's really the nature of the work that we did in this space. And it's out of respect for the importance of those agencies and a view that maybe there's an opportunity to modernize the work of those agencies. All right. So the committee, your select committee, then has another year to go, or I guess 11 months almost at this point, and 142 recommendations. I want to review one more time. 24 have been implemented by Congress, by the full House, correct? 19 are near What's your prospect for what the work will be in the coming 11 and a half months? We're going to be working to get every recommendation we made implemented. Because again, our goal is not just to make recommendations, it's to change the institution. At the same time, while we're working with our implementing partners to get these recommendations implemented, we also recognize there's some additional issues that our committee ought to take up. If you look at our final report from the 116th Congress, the concluding chapter is basically, here's a bunch of stuff we haven't gotten to yet. And among them are things like the continuity of Congress. So, you know, God forbid something happen. There's a lot of issues that have been sort of left uh, vague or undecided where we think our committee could weigh in. There's, I think, further opportunity to make improvements related to the use of technology, looking at how Congress uses technology, how Congress purchases technology. We have a lot of interest within our committee on issues related to physical space within Congress. You know, the institution and its space is not really designed for collaboration. And, you know, these are really old buildings, but looking at how you might be able to use space better to make the organization more efficient is something that a number of members of our committee are really interested in. I know Congressman Timmons has been really leading the charge on issues related to deconfliction of the schedule. And maybe he wants to touch on that issue. Sure. Tom, the amount of time we spend in Washington is insufficient. And the time that we are here is chaotic. There's no better example than today. We were supposed to have our committee hearing at, well, right now, but we have votes right now and it's, everything is always in flux. So Anything we can do to give members more time in Washington to do their job, the better off it'll be. So 
you know, we passed recommendations in the 116th Congress saying that we need to travel less and be in Washington more. And the leader, his schedule is trying to address that to have more, you know, four or five day work weeks, less three day work weeks. But once we are here more, we got to be more efficient with the time when we're here. I call it pinballing. Pinballing around uh, the Capitol and, and the House office buildings is uh, very inefficient. So you need to be in your committee to ask your five minutes, but you didn't hear any of the testimony because you were in other subcommittees or full committees. And so the schedule does not facilitate the outcome we're looking for. So anything we can do to allow members to be in their chairs in committee and to do their work is a good use of our time on the select committee. Can I touch on that a little bit more, sure. Tom? You know, so the Bipartisan Policy Center did some really interesting research on this and found, I, I, I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say it was like 40% of members of Congress on a given day had multiple committees meeting at the same time. And so, you know, for your listeners, you know, if you're watching a committee hearing on C-SPAN and it looks like there's a bunch of members who aren't there, it's usually because a bunch of members aren't there. But they're often in another committee if you change to C-SPAN 2, 3, or C-SPAN 8, which I'm not sure exists, but ought to, you know, they're in that committee. You know, this is something that every high school and college in the country has figured out how to deconflict schedule. And yet Congress has continued to struggle with it. And I don't say that, you know, as, as criticism of anybody, you know, you've got members on a lot of committees, the average members on 5.4 committees and subcommittees. If you look at pre-pandemic, members were in session for 66 travel days and 65 full days. So those 5.4 committees and subcommittees are generally trying to jam every meeting into those 65 full days. Well, what's the consequence of that? It means that you have a bunch of meetings happening at the same time. So either members need to be on fewer committees or we need more days and more full days, not travel days, as the vice chair just mentioned, or, and we need to use technology to deconflict the schedule more. And that exists. And part of the hearing that we had in the discussion with the clerk of the house was looking at trying to implement something like that. And I don't think that can happen fast enough. No chance of going back to the old dream ideal of citizen legislatures that meet for 30 days and then go home. I guess the Republic is way past that, isn't it? I think that's a recommendation we are unlikely to make, Tom. All right. Democrat Derek Kilmer and Republican William Timmons are chair and vice chair of the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. Thanks so much for joining me. You bet. Thanks for having us. Great to be with you. And we'll have you back before this whole thing winds out this year. Meantime, we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? 
So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have 
ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, You know, there are not a lot of us. Um, You know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.